0: Hello, this is Adrian Stone, and I'm the host of Constitutional Café, a podcast for informal but scholarly conversations about important issues in constitutional law and politics worldwide. Constitutional Café is brought to you by a team based at the Centre of Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School. But we are global in origin, in our training, and most of all, in our outlook. Each episode... One of us takes a question of interest to constitutional scholars and discusses it with friends and colleagues around the world. We have a special focus on overlooked ideas and countries and regions underrepresented in global constitutional scholarship. So, settle in and enjoy. Here's our latest episode.
1: Welcome to the Constitutional Café podcast. I am Erika Arban, and the following episode focuses on methodological issues in comparative constitutional law with a specific focus on languages as a methodological component. With my guests, all established or emerging comparative constitutional law scholars, I will explore more in depth how languages shape legal research in the field and whether they should be considered as a barrier or as an opportunity. We will hear from Professor Rosalind Dixon, Dr. Barry Hungebeye, Professor Melissa Crouch, and Professor Francesco Paler. Enjoy the podcast. I'm so pleased uh, to have uh, with me Professor Rosalind uh, Dixon. Uh, Rosa is a professor of law at uh, the University of New South Wales, uh, where she's also the director of the Gilbert and Tobin Center of Public Law, and uh, she also has uh, uh, many leadership roles. Uh, uh, nationally and internationally, including being the co-president of ICONS, the International Society of Public Law. You are uh, one of the most uh, prominent and uh, prolific comparative constitutional law scholars. Uh, your work is very influential and uh, broadly cited uh, in the field. I'm saying this because uh, it shows that you have devoted uh, quite some time not only to research, learn and write. Uh, about uh, a range of jurisdictions, but also to think and reflect upon uh, uh, methodological aspects of comparative constitutional law. My first question for you is uh, quite broad and quite general. Do you think that uh, uh, there is uh, enough uh, conversation on methods in
2: comparative constitutional law So I think we are getting more contributions to this debate and it's becoming an increasingly rich and populated terrain, but definitely there is scope for more conversation. And one of the things that makes me convinced of that is that when PhD students embark on a comparative constitutional uh, project, they have to have a relatively sophisticated methodological account. And I know from talking uh, with them as they formulate and develop that, they still find it quite difficult. And that means that as our more senior scholars in the field, we've got work to do still in providing a framework and an, uh, an account of method that is pluralistic and that works for different projects, but that gives a very clear sense of how we approach our collective enterprise, uh, even as we acknowledge the pluralism within it.
1: What makes, in your opinion, comparative constitutional law uh, different from legal scholarship in general when it
2: comes to methodology? Ran Herschel himself acknowledges the value of conceptual forms of comparison. He calls them concept formation through multiple description. And I've said to him, that's a very unappealing way of describing what is a very important contribution to the field, which is largely doctrinal uh, and comparative in a, with a the purpose of developing analytic and conceptual clarity and identifying areas of conceptual similarity and difference. He wants us, however, to be more focused as the field matures on expanding and adding more causal oriented inquiry. And I think it is important to emphasize that That is an incredibly important addition to the field, but it's not the entire field, nor should it be. And in terms of causally focused inquiry, what Herschel rightly argues is there's a tendency on the part of lawyers to make fairly simplistic uh, claims about causality that are not supported uh, by the evidence. And that if we're to make those claims, we need to turn to economics, econometrics, uh, sociology to some extent, but comparative politics as the most promising method as we move to causal inquiry we can learn very important useful insights but we use new tools that are more interdisciplinary and that it's a mistake to think that traditional conceptual doctrinal approaches can help answer those questions.
1: How can people uh, compensate for the lack of knowledge in certain specific methodologies from the social sciences. Uh, if you're not familiar with the, uh, methodologies from the social sciences, how can you combine them with uh, um, or incorporate them in your legal
2: uh, scholarship? So I think co-authorship is obviously one important uh, response to find people who do have the methodological skills but may not have a full appreciation of the interesting questions that are there within the uh, the field of comparative constitutional studies or the kind of granular doctrinal institutional knowledge. And the second is one of the reasons Comparative Matters is a uh, widely read and influential text is it proposes a method Reasonably well um, understood in comparative politics, but new for comparative constitutional lawyers, and explains it in a very crisp and clear and understandable way that ultimately makes it possible for anyone, without regardless of background or training, to do uh, causally oriented work. My claim is that not only do we need to have more co-authorship, we have to have more of an understanding that. Uh, our work should be overlapping or or concentric in nature, that the field should be a concentric uh, field, not a field that so clearly prioritises originality. Because it's really important to test whether people have selected their cases uh, well by constructing studies that overlap in some ways.
1: Um, let me uh, just uh, move now to uh, languages. Now, I think that most of the discussion in comparative constitutional law methodology relates to um, case selection, but uh, not much uh, discussion happens around uh, um, languages uh, and language barriers in a comparative uh, constitutional law. Um, how do you... Um,
2: responded to this uh. there's an incredibly important role for ethnographic type approaches which are detailed single country case studies that give us a really accurate picture of a particular jurisdiction as we engage with it comparatively that work requires very good language ability And it requires people in the field contributing uh, from many different linguistic uh, backgrounds and traditions and ideally that work being translated into common uh, languages. So English text being translated into other languages and other languages being translated into English not making English the sole language of the of the common uh, encyclopedic contextual ethnographic account, but having ethnographic and deep country case studies that are a repository of knowledge in the field and which are translated uh, into multiple different languages as much as possible. <clears throat> the second thing I would say goes to what I would my point about concentric and collaborative partnerships, that I think, uh, and one of the things I've tried to do in my work, is where I don't have the linguistic uh, capacity to master material from a jurisdiction to work with someone who does. The final thing I would say about language is, there's a famous article by Bruce Ackerman where he says, if you don't speak Spanish, uh, sorry, French or German, you can't be a comparativist. One can always add language based on context um, for a particular project or a particular institutional reason. But I think it's either something people need to really hear and invest on in their earlier career or they need not be deterred by it. They just need to be realistic about it as a challenge and constraint, which they need to be pragmatic about in shaping their co-authorships as well as their individual case selection. And I would say that means that for some scholars who have developed unusual language capacity, one of their potential contributions is to translate in a legally sophisticated and nuanced way the jurisdiction they're familiar with. I really want to emphasize that I think anyone can be part of the field, even if they only have one language. And secondly, that people who have unusually diverse linguistic skills can then contribute back to the field through fairly straightforward but labour-intensive and super valuable forms of contextual translation, uh, which then gives a, a sort of common reference point. Again, I'm mindful that often that is translation into English, but it doesn't need to be. It couldn't be, you know, from Thai to English to Spanish. And that if we as a field recognise the value of what I would call contextual translation, we'll end up with a much richer and better field. The work of translation, if you're a legal translator, isn't simply linguistic. It is to frame the contribution and to use words that are legally freighted and contextually appropriate that make clear why and how the ideas developed elsewhere do or don't translate. Um, Rosa, I would like to ask you,
1: if possible, uh, to... Uh, recommend one or two pieces of uh, scholarship uh, on uh, on broad issue of
2: uh, of comparative uh, uh, constitutional law methodologies. I think that um, comparative matters should be on the list. I think it's very important and very useful. I think that. Um, probably having something on the list that's more like a single country case study approach. So something uh, by Kim Lane-Shepley or someone else on ethnographic methods is is a useful thing as a total counterpoint. Um, And if you're interested in sort of empirical methods, the kind of work that um, Mila Versteeg and Adam Chilton just published on why um, constitutional rights matter. And I have written a recent essay which has been published in Spanish and is still work in progress in English about comparative constitutional modalities or methods. And what I try and do there is summarise five or six different ways of doing comparison and to sketch how each of them implies quite different methods, some quite straightforward and some more ambitious. And to suggest um, which of them require a sort of thick contextual engagement and which don't, that obviously is relevant to the uh, language question. And also which kinds of, you know, uh, forms of comparison raise very difficult issues of case selection versus more open-ended pluralistic or permissive approaches. Sometimes we don't need to read a whole book about methods. Sometimes if we pick up substantive contributions in the field that we admire, we'll find an explanation in those works of how they went about it that are very illuminating for our own methodological approaches that aren't freestanding method books or method articles, but um, pieces that guide us as as we seek to emulate their approach.
1: Rose, it's been a, a real treat uh, to have you uh, with uh, us today and uh, share your broad knowledge and expertise uh, in the field. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to welcome to this podcast uh, Berion Gebeye. Berion is uh, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law in Heidelberg, Germany. He teaches and researches uh, in the areas of uh, constitutional theory, law and politics the law and politics of human rights uh, and international law and development uh, with a focus on Africa. Given your expertise uh, in African constitutionalism, uh, so my first question is this. um, Which countries uh, do you usually write about uh, and uh, do languages uh, influence uh, your choice of jurisdiction and also uh, the choice of sources?
3: So for the past few years, I have been working on a research project uh, that aims to answer two seemingly simple questions. Uh, how we, why we need a theoretical framework for African constitutionalism and how this could offer us better theoretical and practical tools with which to understand, improve, and assess African constitutionalism on its own terms. So one strand of this research has focused on how Africa figures in the canonical uh, scholarship on constitutional law and theory and comparative constitutionalism. Uh, So as this body of work um, is usually available in English, so I have been um, engaged with the Anglophone scholarship. Um, But the other strand of the research focuses on the African constitutional experience um, within, within the continent. I have been focused on Nigeria, South Africa, and my home country, Ethiopia. Uh, I chose these countries uh, largely following, um, you know, Ran masterful work on, on comparative matters on, on case selection. Uh, these three jurisdictions, you know, are strikingly similar. Uh, different and, in, and even in some cases, they are prototype cases for studying constitutionalism uh, on the continent. Um, but these countries, especially Nigeria and uh, South Africa, are both Anglophone countries. Uh, and Ethiopia also uses um, Amharic, which is my mother tongue. So language definitely played an important role in this choice also.
1: Part of your research, at least, uh, focuses on um, how liberal constitutionalism influences and is influenced by cultural diversity in ethnically and religiously diverse states. Uh, What is the relationship between language, uh, legal culture, legal tradition in a diverse continent uh, like Africa? And how does that play out in your your research?
3: I I think language and legal culture or legal traditions uh, are highly intertwined in in many ways. On the African continent, you know, language plays an important role in forming a certain culture, uh, including legal culture and legal traditions. Um, You know, the language of the law, the language of institutions, the state itself from, um, you know, Colonial times, uh, language played an important role uh, informing a certain um, um, legal culture or legal tradition, either uh, French or British or Portuguese. On the other hand, um, yeah, many African countries uh, have uh, uh, many uh, linguistic groups. Nigeria, for example, it has uh, more than uh, maybe Uh, 250 ethnic groups with their own language. So most of the laws, most of the institutions, uh, even uh, the state itself at the federal, state, and local level predominantly use, um, you know, English, a colonial language for for a variety of reasons, uh, rather than the local languages. So in in some ways, language, uh, especially so, uh, the, so colonial languages, English, French, um, uh, are positioned um, uh, heavily and predominantly uh, in the function of institutions, the so law and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, they also displaced um, you know, the local languages uh, uh, from the legal profession and uh, uh, the operation of the state itself. All these things, and language and legal culture are uh, intimately related. Uh, sometimes displacing some other languages, uh, sometimes bringing one language as um, the language of uh, the legal profession. Language, uh, especially on the African continent, um, contributes to national identity or const- Institutional identity, But in terms of the relationship between language and national identity, it's a challenge itself. Uh, if you have many countries have different languages and accommodating all uh, and giving them official expression and recognition and forging a single or some sort of national identity, uh, you know, has not been easy. Uh, but in many ways. Um, Some languages for historical reasons like, uh, you know, English or French also play an important role in bringing uh, many linguistic groups together. At least uh, these languages seem to be at least seemingly neutral uh, from the perspective of many of the uh, local indigenous languages.
1: Which are the obstacles that you have experienced when researching and writing about uh other countries when coming from, uh, from a different jurisdiction?
3: I think there are um, many, many challenges or obstacles in studying other jurisdictions. I think language is one issue, especially in the, uh, on, the, on the African continent. If one uh, understands English, that person will be able to study um, uh, the constitutional systems of around or more than 20 African countries uh if a person have some knowledge of French uh you know the same uh that person will be able to study you know many 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 jurisdictions um but then the but then the challenge is um you know these these languages are official languages so many of the many of the, the discussion many of the issues that concern people in in different jurisdictions are happening um or through local languages uh, which an outsider may not have access and and those languages also somehow structure politics, culture um, and social dynamics that also influence uh, uh, the the constitu- their constitutional experience. so it may take uh longer to get anwanted understanding of issues in 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 other jurisdictions. Uh, partly related to language, uh, partly related to uh, understanding the history, the culture, and the the political, the important political issues uh, people in those jurisdictions face. Um, sometimes, you know, we may think that some issues are important than others, uh, but the locals may think otherwise. And this may have an impact on, um, you know, research output, research production, knowledge production, uh, and, and, and you know, other other things. But even on, on practical uh, terms, how to get sources, primary sources, uh, court decisions, legislation, reports, and so forth. It may not be easily accessible. It may require, um, uh, you know, going to those places. Uh, or uh, verifying the data we get are are really accurate and and things like that. Perhaps another concern, you know, I I, um, study federalism, for example, in uh, Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, and South Africa. And when I do some comparative research uh, and I read uh, from Nigerian scholars, and their view of Ethiopian federalism and my view of uh, their uh, federal experiment. Sometimes they tend to take things that may work for them. They think that some issues are working well in Ethiopia, but you know, locals we think that you know those issues are particularly problematic. And you know, I may also think that some things are working well in in Nigeria, but locals may have local scholars also may have other understandings. Why and how we study, other jurisdictions, and how local scholars uh, or even stakeholders see us and our research is also important.
1: So, when you when you work with these other jurisdictions, uh, do you collaborate with uh, other
3: scholars? Yeah. So, for, fortunately, I have people who you know I write to those scholars, uh, like working on Nigeria or South Africa, and I I tell them. Uh, you know this is how I think, and if there is any um, you know anything you want to say or correct me so i, I share my work usually uh with with people uh, I also ask people for proper uh, data uh whether the data I'm using but most importantly what i what I do is uh try to read uh you know as many uh, sources as possible and try to get uh, um you know the full uh, picture. So I do a lot of research. I share my uh, research with uh, people. In in it. sometimes people respond. Sometimes they may not. Uh, there are also those kind of issues. But I try to communicate with uh, people and friends.
1: Do you think that uh, um, language, that the the language aspect in uh, uh, comparative constitutional law, is uh, is an issue that uh, deserves to be more discussed? uh... Uh,
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I I think language is an important issue, primarily for two reasons. One, uh, even if much of the scholarship is happening in English, there are also scholarships in non-English languages. Uh, So we have to, at at least we have to recognize the existence of a body of work uh, which we may not have access. So I think there is that fundamental limitation in terms of the substantive uh, engagement of, of, uh, of the field, because it, is, it seems to be predominantly uh, uh, Anglophone, and based on jurisdictions um, um, you know that speak uh, a certain language. So some jurisdictions are overstudied, uh, while others are understudied or even not studied at all. Um, and and sometimes even language may not be even an excuse. Uh, you know, if you if you see uh, Africa, for instance, there are many countries which speak um, uh, English or like a predominantly international language, but they didn't figure in the scholarship. The implication of this is we may present some particular constitutional experiences as universal or global experiences. Which are also ultimately um, may reduce uh, the level of mutual learning between uh, different jurisdictions and even scholars. There seems to be a little concern uh, in 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 the field. I think we we may have to do more.
1: Uh, to conclude, uh, do you have uh, a paper or a chapter or a book? Uh, that uh, on this topic that uh, you would like to share with uh, our listeners because you think it's relevant.
3: So there is this paper, uh, I came across by Susie Navot in uh, a paper published in the Kings Law Journal in uh, 2014, the invisible problem of language in comparative constitutional law. And I told, uh, you know, it's a very short article, but I think it's important And it talks about language and legal culture, language and legal uh, profession uh, and legal education and national legal culture, uh, particularly taking um, Israel as a case study. Uh, I I think this is one of, um, you know, it may be a good um, uh, article to start with, at least to acknowledge that language is an issue in 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 comparative constitutional law and comparative constitutional study
1: thank you very much uh, and thank you very much also for sharing your experience uh, with uh, with us I am very pleased to welcome to today's podcast Melissa Crouch. Melissa is Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Research at the Law School of the University of New South Wales. Melissa's research concentrates on comparative constitutional law, law and society, and law and religion, and contributes to the field of Asian legal studies, particularly Southeast Asia, where she has conducted extensive socio legal field research. Your research focuses on uh, on Southeast Asia. Um, Which are the main obstacles uh, when researching and writing about uh, other countries for a scholar like you who comes from a different jurisdiction?
4: I think there are a couple of challenges. Um, In the past, there was simply the challenge that most resources were in hard copy, and even for some jurisdictions like Myanmar today, a lot of um, resources, legal resources, are often only available in hard copy, particularly historical materials. Um, So it often requires time and and, um, access to gain access to them. Um, But certainly that's become easier over time. In terms of uh, challenges, I guess language is something that is multidimensional. Words can often have a number of different meanings. You often have to understand the context in which words are being said. I think it's always important to be in conversation with people from, uh, for example, Southeast Asia, um, because it's never just about sort of the language or a simple issue of translation.
1: Uh, when working in a foreign jurisdiction, uh, there is a the whole context or culture that you have to really understand, uh, especially in, in countries which are marked by uh, cultural diversity. Cheryl Saunders, uh, um, in uh, a very uh, popular book, um, article that she authored in 2009 towards a global constitutional gene pool. She builds on uh, Cottrell in defining culture as involving uh, four dimensions. Uh, So beliefs and values, uh, tradition and history, material considerations and emotional reactions and responses. And uh, she alleges that uh, each of uh, these uh, aspects, these dimensions uh, are critical to understanding the constitutional regime. So talking about cultural Differences that she asks how significant they are and whether they can be adequately grasped by an outsider. So, uh, can you can you tell us a bit more? What is your experience in this sense? So how difficult it is for an outsider to grasp uh, the depth uh, and complexity of uh, of culture um, of a foreign jurisdiction?
4: I certainly agree with you that culture is a complex idea. There have been a number of comparative constitutional law scholars who have suggested that perhaps um, ethnography or anthropology offers a way to um, uh, to expand the field of comparative constitutional law and I think that fits well with a focus on language because obviously anthropologists are often people who um, have taken the time to learn a language but who also take the time to try and immerse themselves in a particular culture. And I think that's really important, even when we're talking about sort of basic institutions like courts, because often um, I think we need to take a step back and try to understand, well, what is the actual function of courts? We can't simply go in and presume that we know what the role and function of a court is. I think in different contexts, they might play um, slightly different roles.
1: The more you probably uh, visit the country, the more you understand about uh, this Mm -hmm culture?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's mostly through um, the people that you meet. And so I think one of the great things about being engaged with um, other countries and cultures when it comes to constitutional law is that there's always a kind of conversation and engagement with judges, with lawyers, with with um, legal academics there, with with government officials, with civil society, just to kind of go back and, and think a bit more about what is the field of comparative constitutional law. Um, you know, I think there are some people who define it fairly broadly and others who define it narrowly. Um, you know, those who define it narrowly might say, well, you know, comparative constitutional law is mostly about jurisprudence and we focus on what courts say. And I think even in, if that's your conception of the field, um, language is still important. Um, yes, it's the case that many apex courts um, now, you know, write judgments in English, but there are still, you know, quite a number of courts around the world that don't. Um, and it, we often find that those are the ones that are underrepresented in comparative constitutional law. So ex- Indonesia is a good example of a constitutional uh, court that publishes in Indonesian, and therefore um, it's not as accessible to others. Um, I think a broader approach to comparative constitutional law is to say, of course, that it, comparative constitutional law is much more than um, jurisprudence and we can take a much broader law and society approach. And I guess that's slightly more um, on the end of the spectrum where I am. I tried to learn two languages and and come to an appreciation of those cultures as well and the way that law works within it. Um, I think that's really important and it kind of gives you A openness to different ideas and different ways that legal systems work, um, as well as a kind of a consciousness, I think, of the limits of the field as we currently understand it and the current priorities um, of the field.
1: When we talk about uh, the role of language uh, um, in, uh, in methodological issues, uh, it also impacts uh, the work of judges because uh, they can look at other jurisdictions uh, in Myanmar and uh, in Indonesia, how languages influence uh, the work yeah. of judges.
4: You're absolutely right. If judges um, are only familiar with local languages, then it does limit their capacity to engage in a broader comparative conversation. You know, I think many judges that I know of do have um, conversational English, but you're right that being able to access English language judgments from another jurisdiction, given that it's also legal English, um, it, that adds another layer of complexity. And I think. The fact that there are, though, judicial networks um, across Asia now, you know, I think there's much more engagement in conversation and and dialogue um, and presentations than there ever has been. Often what happens is these courts might have research staff whose skills in English might actually be better than the judges. And so they would often sort of play a role as intermediary, if you like, for the judges in trying to um, bring to their attention, um, you know, doctrine or or precedent that might be of Use to them, but I guess there's also a question of what, um, how open courts are to looking comparatively um, at foreign jurisprudence. Indonesia is very reluctant, generally speaking, to um, to engage comparatively, with with some exceptions. Um, Myanmar is not really like um, any other model in in a traditional sense, and uh, judges there don't have a it's not standard practice to to look f- comparatively for ideas in judging, um, and so I think it's a, that that's where judicial culture comes in. You have
1: published in English. Uh, do you also write uh, or present or speak uh, in uh, Burmese and uh, Indonesian?
4: So I've done translations. I've given talks and things in Indonesian, um, uh, Burmese. I. It depends on the audience. I'm less confident uh, in a very formal setting. So I would often rely on a translator, but often have an eye to to what they were saying. Um, So the challenge with Burmese is that um, given the word order, um, you sort of have to wait. The translator has to wait for me to finish a sentence before they can start translating. It's a challenging language because particularly in the legal side uh, because it has been cut off from sort of the outside global legal discourse for so long that there are often not actually specific words for what we might consider to be common legal terms. Um, and so there's always a challenge of whether you use an English loan word, like common law, or whether you use the sort of Myanmar equivalent, which is uh, Ingle Ubede, But actually, the Myanmar word doesn't really mean common law, or, you know, it's, it's better to explain what you mean by the common law, because there's a different conception of it there.
1: I wanted to hear um, a little bit more of how you uh, which methodology you use for your work uh, and how you have perfected it, you can maybe elaborate just a little bit on that. Uh.
4: Generally, for most of my projects, um, I've undertaken uh, extended fieldwork, and often that would involve um, interviews, you know, observation in, in courts um, or other um, civil society or other places, demonstrations, um, as well as increasingly some archival research. Often also just a lot of media sources, um, which I think are helpful from a cultural perspective um, to try and understand what's going on. Um, but I want to come back to the question earlier on about whether the study of comparative constitutional requires the mastery of multiple languages, and I'm conscious that for many of us it's it's difficult to even learn one language, uh, whether it's time, resources, you know whatever obviously with languages it's easier to learn um more than one language in the same family of languages than it is to learn a language from a different family of languages. And obviously there are degrees of difficulty with different languages. So I think that sort of idea of, well, everybody has to learn multiple languages in comparative constitutional law is a little bit, you know, needs to be nuanced quite a bit. And what I would like to see in the field is much more... constructive collaboration between scholars from different jurisdictions and with different language skills, because I think actually that's the only way to move the field forward. I think as a field, we haven't really yet um, worked on ways to collaborate across um, jurisdictions that perhaps don't usually talk to each other. So, I mean, for example, it's common for scholars who work on Latin America to be working collaboratively, but, you know, perhaps what about Latin America and Asia or, how you know, how do we facilitate collaboration um, across different jurisdictions I think working comparatively, whether it's with people who work in jurisdictions of other languages or simply other jurisdictions, but that have English as the same language, um, I think it helps you to reflect much more on your own jurisdiction and really question some of the assumptions that I guess are often unstated or taken for granted in that particular jurisdiction.
1: Before we um, wrap it up, is there... um... Uh, an article or a book uh, in comparative constitutional law that uh, you find particularly inspiring and that you would like to recommend?
4: Um, I've been reading a bit on on South Asia and India in particular and Rohit Day's book um, on the The People's Constitution, I believe it's called, um, which is um, more of a law and society type book, but it's on the constitution of um, India, uh, I think just offers a really fresh and creative take on um, that particular point in time. So it's about the uh, the constitutional writ jurisdiction in India and the way that um, people began to see the constitution as their own and really began to own it because of this jurisdiction that allowed them to use the courts.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Melissa, for sharing your experience with us. It is my pleasure to welcome to this podcast uh, Francesco Palermo. Francesco is professor of comparative public law at the University of Verona and head of the Institute for Comparative Federalism at UREC Research in Bolzano, Italy. Francesco has also worked uh, with uh, several international organizations uh, in Europe. Uh, His research uh, concentrates on comparative and EU constitutional law, EU integration, federalism and regionalism, and minority issues, uh, among other things. Francesco you regularly speak uh, and publish uh, in uh, several languages so i would like to discuss with you is uh, particularly the topic of legal translation
5: i think as a lawyer um it is Essential to deal with these issues because the language component of law is underestimated, even though we all know that law uh, is a linguistic tool in a way. But also, and this is, I think, particularly important for constitutional lawyers, uh, language has been and still is one of the most relevant features of uh, national identity. Um, think of uh, the legal. English in English speaking countries. So the term constitution, for example, means completely different things uh, to an American, a Canadian, a a Brit, an Australian. The same language can have many different uh, legal nuances. When Austria uh, joined the EU in 1995, uh, it imposed a protocol on the use of specific Austrian terms in the German language used within the context of EU law, uh, also as a sign of a distinct national identity. I think this is a very important topic and uh, I appreciate that you have decided to start the podcast on these issues.
1: You are also an expert uh, in uh, EU law and uh, EU integration and uh, the uh, European Union is uh, um, a multilingual um, system of governance which uh, um, has always struggled to make sure that uh, all the official documents, including uh, primary legal sources and case law, be translated in the many, in the several official languages of the union. Can you tell us a little bit uh, um, how this is done? Uh, Which uh, tools are available to to translators, but also to students of EU law to make sure that uh, there is a certain consistency
5: in uh, the translations. EU law is the multilingual law par excellence. And the very first regulation adopted by the then European Economic Community, uh, regulation number one of uh, 58, uh, was dedicated to the linguistic regime uh, in the European institutions. And this is still uh, in force. Um, And then we have uh, some legal concepts at at, uh, European Union level that force a comparative and also a linguistic comparative work. Uh, Think of the uh, difficult concept of common constitutional traditions in Article 6 of the Treaty on the European Union. Uh, This uh, concept is a normative Uh, realization of the principle uh, and the methodology of multilingualism, because the court of justice uh, must compare the constitutional traditions and must draw from different cultures and languages. European Union law in general is the product of the the combination of different legal traditions and related concepts and, and terms. So one must be aware of the linguistic uh, and conceptual compromise that um, uh, a multilingual law and especially constitutional law uh, entails. Um, think, for example, of the very concept of the rule of law, which is not the same as rechtsstaatlichkeit or etat de droit. It needs to be understood that it is, it can be used, uh, but it is not the same. Or even the very use, which sometimes creates uh, some difficulties, of the adjective national uh, in English. So you need to be aware of the fact that uh, there are uh, different uh, meanings uh, to the same word sometimes. So uh, perfection is not possible in legal translation, and this is one of the obstacles of comparative legal studies. Now, are there some solutions? Yes, of course there are. And the European Union is a interesting um field where these uh, uh, solutions can be experiment um one is uh the uh, temptation to to simplify uh and to some extent this works but we should not exaggerate so we should leave with with complexity um it is true that uh, there are uh, 24 official languages and 24 working languages uh, at uh, eu level but uh, in fact, um, uh, each institution, agency, et cetera, can have uh, its own language policy, which uh, simplifies a lot things. And then, of course, you need to invest uh, a lot in, in linguistic services. So the language industry in the EU member states is estimated uh, to be worth some 10 uh, billion euro per year. It's a complex uh, machinery. Uh, But there are some tools like uh, the terminological database. It's called uh, YATE, so Interactive Terminology for Europe. And um, this is the uh, the terminology database, uh, which is the biggest in the world. Um, There are uh, almost 8 million terms and close to 1 million entries. Uh, So you can search uh, a term and its translation in all official languages uh, of of the EU. And also uh, what makes it even more interesting, it indicates the lexical used based on the legal domains of the different countries. Uh, For example, um, you you know, you have a a crime um, which can be in some legal context, uh, a a misdemeanor uh, or a felony, for example. And so you need to check whether it is uh, uh, the correct translation. Complexity is uh, also interesting, and it's not necessarily negative.
1: Um, so let's uh, continue to talk about uh, uh, translations. Uh, as I said before, you speak uh, uh, several languages, so I'm sure that uh, you are able to read. Uh, uh, material uh, in in the original language most of the times. So, but uh, um, if you have to resort to, to translated uh, material, how do you assess, how do you make sure that uh, the translation you're using is reliable, can be um, trusted?
5: That's actually a, a very important uh, point. And uh, um, uh, John, John Wright once put it um, that uh, a legal translation is always an enigma. So there is a certain degree of uh, uh, danger in, in, in approaching legal translation. The first criterion is whether the translation makes sense. But the sense is not only you know, that it may, has to make sense from the linguistic point of view, but also, and this is more tricky, from the legal point of view, And sometimes, uh, translators who are not specialized in law might get something wrong. Uh, So you need to have some uh, legal sensibility in that respect. And and finally, I would say, you just have to accept that some legal concepts simply cannot be translated one-to-one and need to be explained. So it is very important that sometimes a good legal translation does not translate but explains uh, terms, um, and this is why legal translations are often done by lawyers. The European Court of Justice normally employs uh, lawyer linguists and not uh, and not interpreters or translators. Uh, or you need to have highly specialized translations. But um, um, tools like the the database and the uh, creation of uh, ever bigger corpora of legal texts of course um, help very much.
1: So uh, before we talked about uh, the EU as a multilingual uh, system of governance uh, and how complicated it is with all the official languages but when we move to the individual member states uh, um, the situation remains uh, quite complicated because uh, in Europe we have some countries uh, who are bilingual so this uh, adds a layer of um, Of complexity uh, to people who are doing research or scholars uh, in general. Um, And uh, this also affects uh, uh, individual rights. And would you like to comment a little bit on that?
5: The uh, assumption sometimes uh, is that uh, states are unilingual, which is simply wrong. Plus, there is the reality of of subnational entities. And this poses additional complexities also to legal translation because you cannot just simply rely on uh, the the terminology in that particular language coming, for example, from another country. I started uh, with uh, the problem of translating uh, into official legal German. concepts that uh, belong to the Italian legal system. You cannot just simply take one-to-one from from where, by the way, from Germany, from Austria, from Switzerland. Again, three different uh, uh, legal systems uh, using German, uh, but uh, using also different uh, German concepts. There are uh, specialized bodies uh, that are uh, not so very well known But uh, sometimes very uh, interesting in terms of the work they do, bodies within uh, the uh, administrations, the governments, um, both at national and at subnational level that create kind of the the legal official terminology. So um, this work in my view, should be uh, looked at more carefully because this is a big help, uh, especially in some uh, language combinations, also to comparative lawyers.
1: Um, Francesco, Europe as a continent is uh characterized by several legal traditions. We have, of course, the uh, Anglo-Saxon common law tradition, the French uh, legal tradition, the Spanish legal tradition, but uh, also, of course, uh, the German uh, legal tradition, which tends to uh, dominate, at least in the field of comparative uh, constitutional law. As a result, when speaking uh, of uh, Europe uh, in comparative constitutional law, uh, often uh, uh, is Germany uh, and German law that uh, that dominates. And this is also because lots of uh, um, German um, lawyers uh, speak English, and so they publish in English, and also that some of the decisions of the German Federal Constitutional Court uh, are translated. Now, for other countries within Europe, to what extent do you see this uh, as a problem?
5: For comparative lawyers, so, some... Uh, languages are more important than others, like some countries are more relevant than others for comparative purposes, right? And the reason, as we all know, is that they have stronger comparative significance uh, and
0: solutions
5: developed in certain countries uh, influence the develop uh, the, the development of, of law in, in other countries and the circulation of models and solutions uh, have also different reasons, uh, colonialism, or simply prestige, being social prestige, economic, political, cultural, or even legal prestige. The case of German, which is, I think, very, very interesting, because German is clearly not a word language, uh, although it is very significant uh, in the field of law, especially, because it has contributed. The German legal culture has been one of the leading legal cultures worldwide. Now, there are um, many efforts um, that that are made in Germany in particular to make German law more known than the German language. Many other countries, I would say, invest uh, still too little in the dissemination of the legal culture. Although there is a trend uh, that goes in, in, in this direction, whether this is necessarily good or bad, I mean, this is another Pair of shoes um, because uh, there is also the risk to you know uh, over simplify and to over converge uh, in the English language, which has many advantages but possibly also some disadvantages.
1: Uh, Francesco, I have one last uh, question that also fits into what you have just uh, uh, said. Um, in Europe, there are um, several constitutional. Uh, Uh, theorists uh, whose work uh, has been, of course, highly influential domestically, but uh, whose ideas are uh, unknown to the international public because there are no translations uh, available. So uh, we lose a little bit of this uh, legal knowledge because uh, uh, we are not in a position to read the the work of all these Thinkers. Uh, Again, do you think that uh, constitutional law scholars uh, should make perhaps an effort to disseminate more and have this material translated?
5: There are excellent works in in many uh, minor languages uh, that are very unlikely to be read. um, And the dominance of English has its pros and cons. Uh, Can I perhaps disclose a secret? But the two of us, Erika, we are editing a book in English on the Italian contribution to comparative federalism, uh, which uh, in our opinion (laughs) is very significant, but very rarely cited uh, as the language is not uh, very popular. So again, uh, efforts are being made and need to be made, but sometimes you necessarily lose something. But I would say it remains essential uh, to read material in as many languages as possible and translated work or or work done in English uh, by uh, non-native speakers is structurally different, I would say, from the work in the original language. So yes, but with some caution.
1: So to conclude, is there um, an article or a text uh, on uh, uh, languages and comparative constitutional law or on methodology in general that you would like to recommend to our listeners?
5: A good um, uh, entry, a uh, good starting point uh, in the uh, issue uh, is uh, a chapter written by Vivian Grosswald Curran uh, called Comparative Law and Language. Uh, It is published in the Oxford Handbook of Comparative Law, the second edition uh, from 2019.
1: That's very helpful, uh, Francesco. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all your insights and expertise uh, on uh, this topic. In this podcast episode of Constitutional Café, our guests have shared with us their insights on how languages shape comparative constitutional law. The main takeaway is that languages should not be necessarily seen as a barrier, as there are strategies that could be employed to overcome the lack of knowledge of a foreign language, for example by collaborating with the scholars coming from the jurisdiction in question. This type of partnership, however, should always be encouraged, also because it facilitates the, the understanding of the local, legal and political culture, in addition to enriching the comparative constitutional law in general. Languages as a methodological component remain an underexplored theme in comparative constitutional law. Along with issues of translation, which were briefly touched upon in this podcast, Other aspects that deserve a further discussion include, for example, how the language of legal education impacts the discipline. My hope is thus to continue this conversation in the future. But for now, thank you so much for listening.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If the recommendations from our guest interest you, you'll find all the information you need at our partner blog run by the International Association of Constitutional Law. Just go to blog-iacl-aidc.org. That's blog-iacl-aidc.org and follow the links to Constitutional Cafe. This podcast comes to you from the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, and we're supported by the Australian Research Council through the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law. See you next time.